the time is now 3.30. Thanks for listening to 94.1 FM KPFA in Berkeley. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and I'm on the wrong mic, darling. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Turn on that other one. Okay. First thing that I want to do today is to tell everyone, yes, uh, that there are special programming on the morning show. Um, they're doing a series on language. So those of you poets and writers out there, uh, this morning they did Spanglish and Black English, you know, Ebonics. That's that great word that they put together from Ebony and Phonics, Ebonics. Okay, we missed that, so that's over. But Wednesday, tomorrow... 14 July from 8 to 8.30. All these language spots are at 8 a.m. this week. Uh, tomorrow morning, we're going to have endangered languages, including native California language languages and a number of others around the world. You know, the languages we are losing. Okay. Um, Thursday at 8, the morning show will feature poets. So, it says here, a juicy jolt of language, ho, ho, Friday, the 16th, from 8 to 9, the whole hour. A deconstruction of political rhetoric. Okay, yes. <laughs> God bless George Orwell. I'm still reading Orwell. The uh, writers are Jeffrey Nunberg and George Lakoff. I, I've been... Um, Fascinated by George Lakoff ever since he tried to deconstruct that uh, psychological school of authoritarian, you know, authoritarian parenting. He debunks that school of thought that told us, uh, uh, you know, when we raise children, don't pick him up when he cries. I remember hearing that. And I remember having to say to people who were then uh, the age I am now, Sorry, but I don't buy that, you know. Um, and they said, you'll spoil that child. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Um, okay, every morning this week at 8 o'clock, the morning show is dealing with language. I also want to thank those of you uh, who've written me lately. I've got quite a pile of mail here. I thank you for your letters and manuscripts. So many playwrights out there. Writers everywhere I turn, awesome. I hope I get these plays read and get back to you. Uh, 
Ah, yes, language is such a fascinating thing. This week I looked in my notebook and tried to think if I had anything to say. (laughs) I, I make little lists of the new phrases, you know, the new buzzwords, words, words, and the catchphrases. What? What is this at the end of the day? What What is that all about? Uh, I tried to think. I guess it's what it says. It just means, yes, at the end of the day means when all is said and done or ultimately in the last analysis, finally, when the dust settles, what it all adds up to, the final score is on looking back. In sum, whatever, I... <laughs> I guess it will do. Um, I saw a New Yorker cartoon this week. A teenager is looking at his uh, father slumped in a chair, and he says, uh, How did you say whatever in the 60s? And I thought back, uh, I remember seeing far out in the 50s. I'm trying to think back of those buzzwords, but no, that feeling, that cosmic shrug uh, that goes with whatever, I kind of like that, but I cannot remember what we used for that. You know, I remember, well, what you see is what you get, but that's not it. Um, Give me a break, you know. The only thing I can think of is, oh, man, or what a drag. If you can think of the exact phrase that we use to express that feeling, whatever, write it on a postcard and send it to me. My favorite word this week, this whole month, is still the one I mentioned last week or two weeks ago. Cockistocracy. I wonder if that has anything to do with caca. Cockistocracy means the government of a state by its worst citizens. You like that? It's spelled K-A- K-I-S-T-O-C-R-A-C-Y. A cockistocracy. <laughs> That's what we've got, folks, yes. I found my quote of the week here. Uh, the French philosopher Voltaire once told us that history never repeats itself, but man always does. And so it was back in Vietnam. Uh, I heard a... Uh, quote on NPR this week. It was from U.S. soldiers. And here is what they were saying back in Vietnam. Uh, This was a little show about Zippo lighters, you know, in Vietnam. But the soldiers said, we are the unwilling, led by the unqualified, doing the unnecessary for the ungrateful. I thought if anything fits today in Iraq, that's got to be it right here. On the head. Hits it right on the head. Somebody said history may not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Yes. I'll give you that one more time because I wrote it down on one of my my little cards for my file. Yes. We are the unwilling, led by the unqualified, doing the unnecessary for the ungrateful. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, I've been gone for a little bit. I went out to the woods to try to uh, get away from media. I don't know why I am addicted to our mass media. I think I have been for a couple of years now. I went to the woods, tried to get a little sea and sand, uh, 
after a few days of silence, going to the Point Reyes Bakery in the morning, seemed like, you know, a trip on the subway or something. Anyway, when I came home, I realized that the only event that had actually penetrated my solitude was the death of Marlon Brando. Politics, of course, is still on everybody's mind, but uh, all the particulars had slipped my mind, you know. I was uh, looking at the, um, oh, what was it? Uh, the Johnnies, that's what Teresa Carey calls them, the Johnnies, the two Johnnies, John Edwards and John Carey. And I thought, yes, they, they will do. Um, was it Molly Ivan said that... Um, Carrie has gravitas and experience and intelligence, you know, but he's still a bore. doesn't matter. He will do just fine. Wouldn't it be nice to have a, a boring bureaucrat in the White House? I think that that would be uh, a very patriotic kind of a thing, you know, someone sensible. Uh, anyway, um, none of that bothered me. I kept thinking of Edna Molay's poem, when I was out in the woods, there's a poem she wrote in which she says, uh, I will love you always, no matter what party is in power. <laughs> yes, the eternal verities. Anyway, what I actually missed was the movies, my addiction, my drug. When I came home, I sat down in front of the uh, Turner Classic film channel, yes, I watched all those Brando pictures on the waterfront, the wild one. Well, not all, of course. He made 40 pictures. Uh, they forgot my most favorite. It's the one made from Tennessee Williams' play Orpheus Descending. The movie is called The Fugitive Kind. Brando plays Val, the Orpheus character with guitar. He plays opposite the immortal Anna Magnani, um... She's an Italian legend. She was apparently appalled by his behavior. Uh, their scenes require her to play one of Tennessee Williams' rather sex-starved women, not a role <laughs> that would fit Anna Magnani. The story is that the two of them literally came to blows. Uh, let's see, Joanne Woodward was in that film. Um, it's all takes place in the South and... Uh, Let's see, Victor Jory plays the villain. If you can find that movie, I, I found it, uh, I found it, I, it's almost my favorite of the Tennessee Williams movies. Uh, maybe the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, but basically, that's the one. That's it. Uh, the fugitive kind. The rumor in the old days was that Brando didn't hit it off with certain strong women, women like Anna Magnani and, uh, that other Italian legend, Sophia Loren, let's see, what was that? The Countess from Hong Kong or something? Anyway, um, <laughs> he said, Brando said that he did not find Sophia Loren very feminine. <laughs> of course, the same kind of gossip told us that Rita Marino won out over time, that um, she didn't let Marlon Brando push her around. Um, what is it? I think it was Anna Kashfi's autobiography. She referred to the, the Marlon Brando Wars. Yes, she said Rita Moreno won. But 
Brando's marriage to that young woman, Anna Kashfi, uh, turned into a war. He discovered she was not Anglo-Indian, apparently. He seems to have been snowed by women he had to protect. He, he, um, he wanted to, to play the knight, I guess. Anyway, she was quite ill, and he married this young woman and found out that uh, she was not an exotic uh, Anglo-Indian woman. Apparently, she was Irish. Her autobiography is full of anger and um, uh, not so much revenge. It's more, um, I would say, yes, just, just straight anger. She's trying to get him to behave himself, and of course, that's not in um, his script. She said that the women were all over him, like flies on feces. She used the S word. Um, I think that, well, at least theater folk, most of the theater folk I know consider these rogue males, renegade males, uh, as creative types, you know, souls in search. They're allowed to behave like uh, children. Yes, we used to, we used to always talk about, um, the child within in acting classes. That was a big deal. Uh, <laughs> the shrinks are taken over that shtick. Anyway. Orson Welles would be the ultimate, the template, the quintessential um, uh, runaway kid. He used to say that Hollywood was the most exciting uh, train set that a little boy could ever find. Uh, there was a TV interview this week in which Marlon Brando said that he really wasn't very much interested in acting, that... He'd always been more interested in writing. And I thought, well, gee whiz, fellow, you know, where's your play? Uh, I, I don't know. His, um, what is it? Um, his nonchalance was maddening. I think back and I, I remember when I was young, I wanted to know why he didn't, uh, well, you know, found an acting school or why didn't he become the governor of California and the president of the United States? And then I realized that, uh, he was too wise to do a thing like that. <laughs> yes, I'd like to compare Ronald uh, Reagan with um, Marlon Brando. That is a very, very interesting contrast. Think about it. Uh, Reagan became what was wanted. Brando actually, well, he tried to become himself, whatever that's all about. He was essentially of the beat generation a beatnik. Um, several actors fell into that mold. Marilyn Monroe, Montgomery Cliff. I suppose Dennis Hopper would uh, claim that he was um, part of that generation. He's a Republican now, I think. Uh, James Dean, of course, was the quintessential beat, but he died so young. Uh, like so many others, Brando was on a search, on a journey. I always wondered why Buddhism uh, wasn't his path. I'm sure he dabbled in it. Uh, he was looking for that poet's world, that world that doesn't exist, you know. Um, <laughs> all the fuss we make, looking for something we cannot have. Uh, what is the line from E.B. White? Yes, my heart has followed all my days. Something I cannot name. St. Francis, the old St. Francis of Assisi, he said that we are what we are seeking. 
Perhaps that was true of Brando. I guess he knew that he wasn't seeking the Oval Office, and he wasn't seeking to be, um, what is it, Laurence Olivier or, oh, what, um, a great uh, theater person. I, I do wish, I do wish he'd tried a little harder. Uh, but the times were not with him after the death of his mother, Dodie. He certainly wasn't trying to please anyone. He certainly made a lot of perfectly awful movies. I looked at one of his biographies on uh, A&E. Apparently his father was a pretty nasty fellow, really not a nice man, and there was no reconciliation there. It's his mother and then his sister, Jocelyn. I remember her. I wish there were more information about her. I saw her once in a play by André Gide, um... Uh, the immoralist it was. It was over in San Francisco, I remember. We sat there, and about half an hour after the curtain should have gone up, Jocelyn Brando came rushing into the theater. She apologized for being late and said if we would wait a few minutes while she got her costume on, they would uh, do the play. <laughs> yes, a, a casual family. Anyway, Brando had an alcoholic mother, and... Apparently that informed his whole life. It it gets into all of his monologues. You remember his uh, improvised scenes in The Last Tango in Paris. They were always said to be deeply autobiographical. Uh, art should help us to deal with life's humiliations, with this pain, pain of our lives. Uh, <laughs> and with the horror, yes, Captain Kurtz. Oh, Mr. Kurtz, he did, wrote Joseph Conrad. And Brando brought that uh, corpse onto the screen through a glass darkly in Francis Ford Coppola's movie Apocalypse Now. You remember that scene. It terrified me. I, I'm afraid that most people make fun of it now. Uh, it's almost comic, that scene where Brando describes the horror of war. He repeats the word over and over. He speaks of the necessity for total war, for ruthlessness. He sneers at the notion of rules of war, you know, limited war. We've heard all that nonsense. Uh, the only solution is to kill them all, especially the children. He describes... Uh, the effort of the American forces, they, they vaccinated all the children in a village, and so the adults in the village simply cut off all the arms. Uh, yes, he keeps talking about the genius of that. For his um, autobiographical, uh, the, little, the little blurbs that they put on regularly, you know, uh, for his epitaph, they keep quoting that line, the genius of that, meaning, of course, Brando's genius, but I remember what he was actually saying in the film, the genius of total war. If you want a blood feud to end, well, then you must end uh, the other, what is it, the other group. You must destroy their blood down to the heirs, do what the Greeks did in Troy, down to the last infant, or you can take some of the women into your own lineage, you know, and that's what uh, 
Patriarchy means that's what rape is all about. You simply absorb them into your line. Uh, I was much moved by Brando's uh, scene in Julius Caesar. His last line, cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. It's the last line in the the first half of the film in which, uh, you know, he has that wonderful scene over Caesar's corpse. And, uh, you know, he provokes the town, the people, the Romans, to go after Brutus. Uh, Brando's Mark Anthony surprised us in the 1950s because we really did think he was Stanley Kowalski. Most of us were really startled at that, that uh, uh, muttering and that uh, method acting. Of course, uh, Brando was all wrong for the part of Stanley Kowalski. Tennessee Williams had intended um, that Pollock, yes, he called him a Pollock, to be an insensitive, coarse, brutal rapist. Uh, Anthony Quinn toured in Streetcar Named Desire, and it was Quinn who portrayed Stanley as Tennessee Williams had written the role. There's an interesting profile of Marlon Brando written by Truman Capote in the current New Yorker. You might check that if you're interested in Brando. It's the issue for July 12 and 19. It's an excerpt from a piece written, oh, 1957, almost half a century ago. Still very revealing. Truman Capote says he first saw Marlon Brando when he attended a rehearsal for Streetcar Named Desire on a winter afternoon in New York. Back in uh, 1947, Brando would have been almost unknown at that point. Uh, he hadn't made the movie Streetcar. Anyway, uh, Truman Capote arrived early, and he saw what he took to be a stagehand stretched out on a table under the work lights. Uh, on the young man's very impressive chest was resting an open book, The Basic Writings of Sigmund Freud. <laughs> I don't know whether... Truman made that up, but it sounds reasonable. Uh, he goes on to speak very lyrically uh, of the contrast between Marlon Brando's physique, then very beautiful, and his presence, his psyche, his angelic refinement and his gentle face and voice and so on. Here's a few lines, a few um, excerpts from this 1957 profile at this point, uh, ten years after he met him, he and Brando meet again in a hotel in uh, Kyoto. In, yes, he, he, he describes Brando lying on the floor. Yes, uh, Brando lolled his head against a pillow, drooped his eyelids and then shut them. It was as though he dozed off into a disturbing dream. His eyelids twitched and when he spoke, his voice, an unemotional voice, in a way cultivated and genteel, yet surprisingly adolescent. A voice with a probing, asking, boyish quality seemed to come from sleepy distances. He said, the last eight, nine years of my life have been a mess. Maybe the last two have been a little better, less rolling in the trough of the wave. Uh, have you ever been analyzed? I was afraid of it at first, afraid it might destroy the impulses that made me creative and artist. 
A sensitive person receives 50 impressions, where somebody else may only get seven. Sensitive people are so vulnerable, they're so easily brutalized and hurt, just because they are sensitive. The more sensitive you are, the more certain you are to be brutalized, to develop scabs and never evolve. Never allow yourself to feel anything because you always feel too much. Analysis helps. It helped me, but still, the last eight, nine years, I've been pretty mixed up, uh, pretty much a mess. His voice went on as though speaking to hear itself. An effect that Brando's speech often has, for like many persons who are intensely self-absorbed, he is something of a monologist, a fact that he recognizes and for which he offers his own explanation, he says. People around me never say anything. They just seem to want to hear what I have to say. That's why I do all the talking. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, by the end of this rather revealing article, yes, uh, uh, Truman Capote comes to the conclusion that the decade, 47 to 57, had made uh, a number of alterations. Uh, Brando's eyes had changed, although they're... Cafe Espresso color was the same. He says the shyness, the traces of real vulnerability that they had formerly held had left them. Now he looked at people with assurance and with what can only be called a pitying expression, as though he dwelt in spheres of enlightenment where they, to his regret, did not. Well, I don't know. That's not entirely kind, but an actor, as I see it, is by definition a shape-shifter, uh, can even be a shaman, a bodhisattva. You remember the Orthodox Church was always suspicious of actors, of their uh, magical qualities, you know. There were certain periods in history when actors were not buried in consecrated ground, like suicides. For me, the actor is a medium, a conduit, an emotional guide. I did nothing but act in plays myself from the age of six to 26. My first child was born when I was 26, and real life, <laughs> yeah, a reality sandwich, real life intruded. After that, but in my world, the theater has always been a kind of left-wing theology. I think of playwrights as uh, educating our emotions as the ultimate in psychologists or analysts. Actors transmute the words. Uh, playwrights have the ideas, the thoughts, but it is the actors, you know, who have to transmute and express all that sad and sappy stuff that we're made of. Uh, the written word, the print, well, that's not really very much. Uh, it's it's a start, dramatic literature, but it's the sound that makes the sense. You know how that is. When I sit around with a group of actors and hear them read a script, then I know whether the thing uh, is real or not. It's the voice. The voice. Uh, the voice is a revelation of the body and the soul. Uh, I will say my guess is that Marlon Brando was the greatest actor of my time. He showed me more pain and pleasure than 
Oh, even Greta Garbo. <laughs> As they say, he let it all hang out. Check the opening scene in The Fugitive Kind. It's his monologue to the judge who's going to let him off. Uh, I still see Marlon Brando at the gates, at the gates of heaven, giving that speech before the final judgment comes down. I think the gods would forgive him his human failings, which were vast. If honesty is the work of a lifetime, he put in 80 hard years trying to reveal himself. The self is the only truth we have. So if you feel something, for all our sakes, express it. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Republican Freak Shows. See Dick Bush, half CEO, half wit, and other Republican freaks, plus spellbinding art, photography, short films, dance, comedy, live music, clowns, food, and booze. A benefit party to send the Ronald Reagan Home for the Criminally Insane to the Republican National Convention. Also benefits the Haiti Action Committee. Sunday, July 18th, 6 till 10 p.m., the Cat Club. 8th and Folsom Street, San Francisco, 415-385-5956, www.insanereagan.com. Two, three, four. Y'all ready for this?